There are many famous inventors who have changed the world. Edison, Hoover, Dyson all come immediately to mind. But what if I were to add the name of Holmes to that list? In fact, our next guest is Richard Holmes, inventor and founder of Voxbox. Voxbox is a foldable, portable and storable recording booth for content creators, podcasters or voice artists and that launched its Kickstarter in July of 2023. If you want to know more about Richard and about his life as a business person and inventor, then join us after the introduction. Hello and welcome. I'm Clayton M. Koch, and I'm also the host for The Cashflow Show, the radio show that's disguised in the shape of a podcast, but with so much more. Every week we'll be interviewing someone inspiring from the business world and finding out how they started in business, what their trials and tribulations were, and how they intend to grow their business in the future. We will also be finding out about what they do in their spare time, as well as asking them to pick a book, a film, and a favorite single or album, and to share their reasons for doing so. So why not join us at The Cashflow Show? It's not just a radio show, it's a whole new way of doing business. The Cashflow Show, coming to you from the city of London, real people, real business, real talk. Hello and welcome, Richard. Thank you very much, Clayton. I met you at the podcast show in London. I saw you with your booth and I was like, whoa, let me stop and check this out. And we had a nice, polite discussion. There were lots of other people coming along, sharing their interests as well. So for me, it's great to be able to get you here because a lot of people don't always understand that in doing these podcasts, the actual podcast itself is never the problem. It's actually getting somebody to actually get on the show. And you've been very, very helpful. I know this is a, an incredibly busy time for you. So what I wanted to ask and to start and kick things off with is tell us about the inspiration behind Voxbox and how the idea for this product came about. Sure. So it was a lockdown project and my daughter is well now singer songwriter then uh, in her last second year at university doing music and so she had to find somewhere to record and she was actually in this room which i've turned into a workshop but this was her bedroom and it's right next to a railway line and so she was you know, having to re-record stuff a lot so i said well i'll build you something that you can put a laptop in because she records on a laptop and a microphone and you know it's big enough for you to kind of put yourself in and, and hopefully it'll work and I did, I did build, I love building, and I always have, but it was a kind of massive box. It was like 80 pounds, smelt of chemicals because it was cheap acoustic foam and some blankets. And you know, whilst it worked, and it was kind of startling, because I don't know much about sound. I'm, I'm learning, but I certainly didn't know anything then. It kind of had that effect of when you put your head in it, it was like, oh, I'm in a completely different environment. But it, it wasn't actually it didn't have real utility you know it wasn't functional took over her room in the big room and as i say it was sort of hugely heavy to move around so i kind of forgot about it other than i liked the idea that it worked as a as a booth um and then my son in a lockdown project wrote a book i mean I, hats off to him you know lots of people say oh i've got a book in me and he actually did it he thought he'd always had a book in him he thought well it's now or never so he wrote a book and my wife who's an actress and he edited it and edited it and, edited it. and she said, I will record it when I think it's sort of good enough to record. So they worked months on honing it into a book and then she needed to record it. So 
I thought, I don't want to build that big box again. So I built a smaller box, but this time out of acoustic foam. And it kind of, it again, really worked as a, as a unit. It had another uh, sort of feature, which I almost discovered by mistake, but I, I realized I could make it fold into a relatively small slab and then pop up into a box. But it kept falling apart because I couldn't get the hinges to, to stick to the rubber, to the foam rubber. And it was a bit smelly still. And my wife really hated putting it up and down. And it was always me who had to come in and kind of explain how it worked. So again, I sort of ran out of steam on that one. I showed it to a few people and everyone laughed and sort of said, well, it works, but it's you know, not a product. The final kind of moment of like, oh, maybe this will work now is a friend of mine. And this I'm talking about an old friend, 50 years I've known this man. He's an artist and he's a furniture maker, but his day job is he's a very high-end office design consultant. So, you know, Google, Microsoft, that really high-end stuff. And he lives in a lovely house, as you can imagine. And I went to go and visit him. He lives in an old pump house that has walls that are like two yards thick they're massive factory walls so the windows are naturally sort of recessed right back they feel like they're in a tunnel and he didn't want a kind of dinky little little wind you know curtain on having to reach through to a dinky curtain and he didn't want to have a dinky curtain on the outside of what is effectively a hole he remembered this product called pet felt which is a acoustic architectural felt that he'd used all his life in building very high-end boardrooms and stuff because it, it absorbs sound so well and anyway he, he did these special cuts because he's a genius he did these special cuts in a sheet of felt and you put it against this window hole and you pushed and it it just formed a box and then went into the hole and cut out all the light and all the sound from outside and it was like a eureka moment to me it was like that's what I've been looking for, exactly what I've been looking for. And because he's a generous soul, it's called Nick Pryke. He introduced me to the material and then someone who could cut it for me. So those are the three chunks. And a really basic idea for my daughter, a slightly more developed idea for my son and wife, and then a eureka moment for me of coming across the material that would put the idea together with something functional. Quite a journey in itself. But what I wanted to know is... Have you always been an inventor or is this a world away from your original career? Well, I was both laughing and blushing to be put it Edison. Um, I have always been handy, but I would, I would consider myself to be a sort of bodger. You know, I, if something needs doing, I will do it or mend it. And so I've always been a, a maker of sorts. And I did take up sewing quite seriously, which I still do during lockdown, bought myself a decent machine and I, I still make stuff, although I'm a bit behind at the moment. So I, I do consider myself to be sort of handy. And I've you know, come up with ideas before, but never never really thought they were products. So this is my first product. It may be my last. I think I've got some developments to go on Voxbox, the sort of Voxbox 2 and some accessories. When I write down inventor, so, you know, I've invented something, it does feel a bit weird, like my real job. Well, like, but you know, my real job was as an independent film producer, and I found it very difficult to, to say to anyone I was a producer until I'd made my first film. So maybe now I've made something, and if it sells, then I will, I will feel more comfortable in calling myself an inventor. Well, going back to our original conversation, and this isn't yeah. part of, of, of the script or the conversation, what we discussed before we came on air about mm. the ticket inspector, maybe that's about validation. I think that's very true. And I think most human beings, you know, there's that imposter syndrome and all those things that people suffer. And, you know, I do remember at the beginning of my career as a film producer, before I'd made a film, 
if if I got a script or something, and the, and the project was just had a had a big budget, I would pitch it to people, and I could tell that whilst I was doing an enthusiastic pitch, my whole demeanour and all my all energy was saying, for goodness' sake, don't ever invest in this film because <laughs> it's, it's I'm not the man to do it. I, you know, so it. it I think, and then I made a very modestly budgeted film, and I gained my confidence, and and that feeling went. So I think you do, you know, you do have to validate, self-validate, and you have to be validated to give you that confidence to go out there. I would say the podcast show was where I went from being, oh, does this work? To my God, this works because I'd had a few actors put their head in the box and give me some fantastic reactions, which you can see on the website, but. You know, popping it up and down 200 times plus during those two days and every single person who put their head in the box went oh wow oh yeah right right that really works that was a moment where i thought this is actually a product you mentioned about being a film producer how did you start on that journey which obviously led you to inventing the box box i'm not sure they're entirely linked but there's definitely some factors in what i do in my day job to the box and i'll get into that i started as a comedian in a double act out of university with a, a guy that i worked with for 12 years and we we did film sketches in two minutes so we would like take the horror movie genre or james bond or star wars and we would condense those films into like a two or three minute physical fast high energy sketch and we were kind of fine you know on a good day we were like seven out of ten but we did jonglers we did comedy store and the tunnel in greenwich if you ever went there we made our living for a couple of years doing it but we kind of as soon as you go professional like you know talking about box box as soon as you go professional you you can rank yourself amongst your competitors and we knew we were never we weren't geniuses you know we weren't going to set the world alight so that feeling plus a feeling of frustration about always condensing things, always turning a genre into a sketch, you know, kind of crunching it. We thought, wouldn't it be lovely one day to write something, you know, from outside, you know, from inside out and expand something. So we wrote a couple of short scripts for films uh, and made them. And one was awful and one was pretty good. And that led to someone taking a punt on us. We had a script by Peter Capaldi, who's Mr. Doctor Who. Oh. Um, and it was a really tight little road movie about Peter going from London to Glasgow, where he meets his wife as a hitchhiker. And it was a romantic road movie. And it was small enough that I felt comfortable pitching it. And we managed to raise the money and make that film. And it, it won a Scottish BAFTA for Best Film and Best Actor for Peter. And it won the London Film Festival Audience Award. And it was at that moment I felt, I'm a film producer. And so I went on to make generally horrors and comedies like, you know, I don't know how old you are, but I made things like Waking Ned and Chicken Fish, and then I made horror films like Eat Lake and The Ritual. And they don't have much in common apart from I absolutely love hearing the audience. You know, when you finished your film, it takes years to make a film. And when you play it and you hear the audience react, that's incredibly exciting. And now the link to Box Box is I've always been a bit of a stickler for sound. Sound is, you know, sound is such a weird thing. You know, I don't pretend to understand it scientifically, but in narrative, um, if the sound isn't right, the audience may not know why they're not enjoying it or why they're being thrown out of the of the feeling. But often it's because the sound, the atmosphere behind the actor, or a click or a bump, or obviously a obvious ADR, you know, when they replace the dialogue, can really throw you out of the moment. 
And that's always important to me. So the link to Voxbox is, and lockdown is in having listened to a number of podcasts. It wasn't that they were badly recorded somewhere, but not all of them, but they were inconsistently recorded. So when you had someone here and someone there, it sometimes bumped you out of their flow when you kind of thought, oh, we're back with the, we're back with the chat with the reverb, you know. And, you, and so I think what, what I wanted to create is something that gave people consistent, clean, dry sound. I'm not pretending it's a studio. It's not, it's not as good as a purpose-built studio. It never can be. It's got an open back, for instance. But it does make your voice dry. It does make it clean. And therefore, if you're doing a podcast and you're wanting everyone to be balanced, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a simple way of achieving that. I read somewhere that even though sort of BoxBox was inspired by the lockdown, how did the pandemic and people's need for homemade studios, because at that point there was no going out to anywhere, there's no going out to your local podcast studio for a coffee and a, and a chat, you were definitely stayed at home unless you were a member of the Conservative Party. But um, ultimately the bottom line was that how did that influence the creation of VoxBox? It's a really good question. And of course, in, like in all, in all stories, you kind of conflate certain things, but, but it's no doubt true. And my wife is an actress and she has 45,000 Twitter followers and she, she used to love it more, but she really loved communicate, especially during lockdown. It was a way of communicating with people. And it was actually her who sort of said, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? And it was, it was generally journalists, podcasters, actors who were building studios out of sofa cushions or you know living under a duvet with you know sweaty duvet head as we started to call it and you know we're, we're doing valiant work and by the way i'm not knocking the duvet you know a really thick duvet is an excellent studio but it's not very nice so it was a sort of once the idea started to develop i remembered those photographs and i actually researched them and there are literally hundreds of them on twitter you know homemade um duvet studios and I thought, well, actually, this, this answers a need as well. People, so the thing about the duvet, well, the duvet studio is uncomfortable because it's airless and sweaty. The sofa cushion studio is irritating because you have to break up your studio. And both of them tend to end up either on the kitchen table or in a very inconvenient place for your, you know, your household. So it answered two needs. One is it, it was stylish, more comfortable, completely not sweaty. And secondly, it could be popped up and down. So you didn't have the irritation factor, either for yourself or your housemates going, it's time to take the studio down now. You know, so I thought, yeah, there's definitely something here. What's interesting is that it reminds me of an episode we had, I think it's episode 49, with Chris Tester of Naturally RP. And he's a, a voiceover specialist, real master of his craft. And what's interesting with him is that he had a, a makeshift studio when he first started and it incorporated a, a, a blanket or a duvet, but it was held up by an awe that somebody had, 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 yeah. I, I'm going to use the word borrowed, um, <laughs> on some crazy night out. And that was the, the that, that was the yeah. formation of his early studio. And he showed a picture yeah. of it on LinkedIn. It yeah. was quite, uh, uh yeah. he'd mentioned it, but he didn't, obviously I hadn't seen the picture then, but subsequently he did show his, uh, humble beginnings. When you, when you make something, whether it's a film or product, you know, you thought, who is your market? And I'm very aware that if you spent, you know, money and a great deal of time and the sacrifice of giving over a portion of a room to a permanent unit 
it probably won't be soundproof proof you know, very few things are in, in a domestic environment but it will be really good and you don't need a box box if you've got that the only reason you might is if you're on the move if you're in a hotel or you're in a you know, caravan on a film set or wherever you might be then a box box at least will give you a, a an environment that's better than a kind of hotel curtain or, or a duvet but i think my market is the people who are either sick of the duvet or the sofa cushion just testing the water you know they're thinking is this for me i don't want to spend you know too much money on something i want to just find something which lets me know whether i can do it i would say it's a professional expense it will be 299 including vat so i don't think anyone's going to buy it on a whim you, know, you buy it if you want it and you need it but i think it's it's got a, a relatively large you know bit in the middle for the market you know for not for people who are still willing to do the duvet because they don't know you know if they're, if they're sure yet and it's you know it's before you get your professional studio at home but it's those people in the middle it really does work for and do you think that to a certain extent with a lot of these products it really is about when you start to take your podcasting or your journalism or whatever seriously if you're getting paid then that would be an investment for you or if you're very serious about your hobby yes i think if you're if you're very serious about sound then you know you will be not necessarily box box but you will be looking for solutions which make you sound better and i think we're part of that i think i i don't know about you but there's been moments in my life when i've gone it's not just about being paid it's it's because i you know i don't want to do that again it's like hearing yourself or or sort of you know someone doing an interview on the radio and someone saying yeah i'm sorry could you could you say that again you know it's one it's it's wanting to be to present yourself in the best way possible so i think yes it is podcasters it is uh, you know performers um actors and and uh, and voiceover artists but it's also people who have to appear you know either on screen or on radio wanting to you know how often have we heard recently you know especially with all the stuff's going on around the world where you know the, the sound isn't great from where they are you know so a lot of journalists are, are sent places and i know for a fact i i met lewis goodall in um the podcast show and he was very he's very generous and kind actually and he saw my little presentation and he and he put his head in the box and he went oh wow tom tom he's my producer tom tom this is exactly what we need when we travel you know i don't want to do the duvet anymore i want something like this so i think there is a there is a sort of that that moment when you think i want to sound more professional that's what this is for excellent so the thing that I wanted to ask is that you've now moved into the realm of full-on commerce and you've started a Kickstarter campaign. What's that been like? Luckily, I have a project manager who's um, an amazing woman called Sophie Kane, who has just done her professional qualifications in project management. So it has been relatively painless in that we did a lot of prep and we had a lot of stuff and content lined up and she's extremely good at the kind of gantt charts and stuff and just making sure that we are ready for the next stage you know we we were also very focused on what our product is so you know on kickstarter you can do a sort of knife or a bag or a battery charger or whatever it might be and you know it's 20 quid 30 quid 40 quid maybe and i think a lot of people might take a punt they might kind of go yeah yeah I'll, I'll buy that I, I like the look of it or i like the story we knew that we needed two things one is a slightly longer period of time than normal to launch it because it was a concept that people had to get their head around 
and it was going to be on you know on Kickstarter. It's two fifty. It's two four nine. So it's not a sort of trivial expense. It's something you're going to have to think about. So we pl we planned it on that basis, and so far in sticking to the plan, we're now through our early bird offers, and we're into our main you know main pricing offer. And it's it's you know the trend is good. The trend is going up. A long way to go, and I need to start getting you know a little bit more head of steam behind it. But yeah, it's been a really interesting, wonderful experience. And one more, sorry, one more anecdote. The best thing about it and social media is that I was demonstrating it. Someone said, what's it like inside the box? And I just, you know, reversed the camera and I showed them a setup where there was a ring light and a decent, you know, USB microphone and an iPad just to show what it could fit. And someone said, oh, does it, are you showing me the two cable holes? There's two, two cable holes either side. But they both look like they're for USB. Do, does, do you have an XLR hole? And I didn't even, honestly, I didn't really know what it meant. And then he showed me. And I went, oh, that's what my daughter's got on her microphone. So live, I turned one of the holes into an XLR-shaped hole. And that will have saved me an enormous amount of grief. <clears throat> because I can imagine people buying it and getting it home and going, oh, no, I can't get my mic cable through. So now I've got one XLR-type you know, slot and one USB slot. And that is the power of Kickstarter and social media, live feedback before you go into full-on production. You mentioned earlier about having that full-on response from mm. social media. Now, mm. for me, what that proves is how significant it is that being a small agile company in comparison mm -hmm. to say somebody else. Um, for me, what you've sort of demonstrated is, is that the power of being able to interact with your customer yeah. and give them advice and give them support, but also give them a solution to a problem that if you're a much bigger company, there would be an issue. So I, I, I when I'm not here, I moonlight in the music technology world. And, and in that world, you get a lot of frustrated people, usually men, but um, uh, also sometimes usually who are incredibly angry that the product that they bought under the assumption that it might do this does something not quite what they expected. And they're literally got, you know, uh, pitchforks and torches ready to go down to the offices and so on and so forth. And it's amazing how having that ability to talk to the developer, the inventor, it really does give people, makes people feel closer to the product. My adage is the customer is always right. You might as well, there's no point in having a dissatisfied customer because it's it kind of snowballs and people join either side of an argument and there's a dual pile on. And my instinct is always to go, what you're saying has real merit. So someone was talking about the price, for instance, they said, oh, you know, so 200 plus quid for you know, five bits of material and some glue. And I went, you're absolutely right. That is a valid question and inquiry. And what I did is I, on, on you know, on a little clip, I broke down how I got to that price. What I said, what he asked was valid. And what I said was valid, which is that actually it's not five pieces of material. It's four pieces of material and no glue. That's not the point. You know, there's material costs. There is labor costs. There is shipping and storage costs. There is postage and packing costs, and then there is VAT, and then there's a thing called profit. You know, you have to make a profit so that you can both pay yourself, but also then develop the product into the future. And when I did that for him, bless him, he came back and went, 
Yeah, fair enough. You know, it's just completely and utterly took it. But what's interesting about that is it proves how uncommercially minded so many people are. And they don't really necessarily understand that if it was just four pieces of fabric or, or felt and a bit of glue, why hadn't he done it? I think that's a very fair point as well. I think, unfortunately, or fortunately for us as consumers, is that I have no doubt that if this product lands, there's going to be competitors stroke copycats. You know, I've registered it with the IPO and I've taken out a trademark and all those things to protect myself. But, you know, I, I can't really protect myself. But I think when people do see it and think, oh, I wonder if I could do that. You know, there has been genuinely full-time six months of design. If I add up the last three years, six months of design prototyping gone into this. And there was a moment, Clayton, when I found PET felt and I and I realized that you could cut it all almost all the way through and it would form a beautiful hinge. But then I realized that my box had hinges that went both ways. It, it, I can't quite explain it, but it wasn't like school. You remember in school where you, you drew those kind of crucifixes, cruciforms on a paper, and then you mm. cut them out, and you could fold them into a cube. And because they all fold in, it works. But VoxBox folds in and out. It collapses onto itself. And that means I've got one hinge going that way and one hinge going that way, and you can't cut that out of one piece of material. So my developer said, I'm really sorry, Richard, we just can't find a way of doing the hinge which goes the other way and they've got fabric and glue and you know bolts and stuff and they sent me back this rather sad carcass <laughs> of, of, of felt uh, which wasn't going to work and I went to my wife and I said well you know maybe it's just some that thing I did one day and I and that's my second eureka moment I went to bed that night and I went what if we cut the felt the other way and then inserted it into the other felt and it and I, I rang up my designer friend and he went yeah, yeah, it actually worked. Like, like a, he called it like a, like a lozenge or like a, um, you know, uh, I think he called it like a lozenge of material. Anyway, went through a number of iterations on that, which didn't work, but the, but the basis of it worked, which is that you you could push insert felt um, this PET felt against itself, and it was very sticky once it'd been cut cleanly. If you got two cuts the same shape and pushed them into each other, they just stuck. And so that was, you know, that took another six months to kind of get the, well, I'm exaggerating, two or three months to get the hinges correct. And if you see here, the last development was the dog tooth shape has completely cured that. So it's, I know, I've found, I found the development of it basically tremendously exciting and occasionally like a precipice where you go, oh, that's it. That's not going to work. And then you have that another moment. It's been great, really exciting. So during the podcast show, you interacted with some podcasters. There were sound engineers there, media students. What were some of the key insights that you gained about your product from their feedback and reaction? I think the main insight I got was about, was about selling. And I know it's not quite, I will answer your question in a more direct way, but I was, you know, I've sold all my life, pitch and pitch and pitch until you gather enough finance and, and, and talent and, goodwill around it that you can make it into a film. So I've always been a salesperson in that way, but I've never sold a thing, you know, where you're going, this is a product, you know, that was really, you know, you could touch it and feel it. So I was extremely nervous. So what, what I did develop was luckily quite early on is it was an opening line because I could tell that people were there for, for a number of reasons, just for, you know, of congregational reasons, getting together with other podcasters or whatever, that's very valid to see, to see new stuff. And especially to go and listen to things, you know, there are lots of very good seminars and, and lectures going on. So I, I knew I had to get people 
hooked very quickly. So what I was just asked them as they walked past my booth was, can I, excuse me, can I ask what you do? And it's very difficult. It's not, it's an open question. You can't just say yes or no to it. Plus it engaged people enough. They kind of, very few people went, sorry, I, I don't want to tell you that. So they would say, I'm a you know, media student, whatever. And at that point I could say, can I show you something which will take you literally one minute? And because I could pop it up in 15 seconds and put it down in five seconds, plus a bit of spiel, it was about a minute. So that was very effective. And I suppose what that taught me, what it taught me about my product was two things, is that people loved the action. They loved the way it came into a box and they loved the way it collapsed back down into a slab. And then they and they loved putting their head in the box and going, oh, wow, could even... You know, I, I I forget how effective it is, but you know, in the podcast show, there's a lot of hubbub around, and they would go in, and a couple of people would stagger. They go, "Oh my god, I, it's, it actually makes my it makes me feel unstable because I haven't got the sort of you know the bat radar going on." So I learned that, and I I learned that the price was about right. I, I you know I, I tell people it's going to be two nine nine including VAT. I got two people that went, "No, no, that's too much." Everyone else, a few people went, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. And most people went, yeah, yeah, I could see that. And they understood it. Um, and what did I, I didn't get any, didn't get the XLR hole feedback. People liked the cable holes. There wasn't, there wasn't anything else. I mean, people go from being about the weight of it, it's five kilograms. You know, sound, as you know, Clayton, from, from recording so often, a lot of that sound baffling is about density, it's about literal physical weight, as well as shape and, and form. So, you know, Voxbox can't weigh you know, a pound and a half, because it, it really won't work. What I've chosen in my thickness felt is the, I think, the ideal thickness between, you know, efficacy and functionality, being able to lug it about. And so that feedback was was pretty sound. People liked that it was solid, but that it wasn't, a, you know, too much of a lump. It just, all in all, it was just, I suppose, what I learned is that the product was, uh, I'd use this advisedly, the product was delightful. People were delighted by it, the way it moved and the way it worked i think that's what i find fascinating because i think a lot of people want a product like that and i think podcasting and media work generally has taken off dramatically in the last few years especially post pandemic and there are significant changes in people being in a position where they have to work from very noisy environments. I have an idea of what it works like in a smaller venue or smallish venue. How has been the experience when it's come to, you know, much sort of a larger venue, sort of ch a church size mm. venue, something like mm. that? Do people yeah. get the same I effect? It, it's a, again a very good question. And I was. There's two things that you have to look at, you know, think about when you're doing a product that's designed to help people with their sound uh, production. It's reverb and noise, you know, decibels. So I remember my daughter in her final, final year at Manchester won a prize. And the prize was to sing a song in the Royal Victoria Baths in Manchester, which if you've ever been, I really advise you go, they're empty. You can't swim in them anymore. They're this beautiful slightly um intimidating uh victorian bars and I, just one thing on the outside there is these doors for you know women men and then there's a door in the middle for second class men <laughs> <laughs> oh dear <laughs> who is that yeah they got they got the, the pool with the dirty water anyway that's not the point she she sent me this it's a beautiful track 
her name if you want to listen to it and it is quite a moving song she's called poppy holmes um and it's it's the royal victoria bath song anyway she she, she sent this raw clip to me uh, you know they, they did the music mix beautifully fantastically well engineered but to start with you know you can't hear anyone because it's so echoey so reverby so when I was thinking I've got to demonstrate reverb. I can't do that in the, in the, in my room because it's not going to be dramatic. So we, oh, luckily, you know, I have an actress wife and a performer daughter and me, and we took I, for a hundred quid, bless them, they lent me the bars for an hour, and I took a vox box up there, and my daughter sang a sang a, a sort of looping note, whilst holding the phone through the bars and then coming into the vox box, and you can see what that does. So you can see it literally live. And then my wife did a bit of Shakespeare but misquoted it she will go to her grave realizing that forever she has misquoted Shakespeare but that's very dramatic as well from it from a wide shot into the box and then I did a crumbly old man thing you know saying how, how it how it killed reverb but you can see there that it has a you know a profound it's an open back box it's never going to kill reverb it's not a studio but it has a profound effect on it and then with noise I really got into the weeds on noise and decibels Clayton because I noticed that a few competitor products, no one's no one's got the kind of box which collapses and storable and portable and all that stuff like, but there's some great products out there. Studio Bricks, um, the I think it's called the Walk-In Sound Recording Booth, uh, Isovox, you know, they're all very, very good products. And I'm not, you know, I'm not pretending they're not. But I noticed that some of them had data, you know, on the website used, to, you know, what was its effect on noise? And so I thought, I need data. So I rang up, you know, because I'm in the film business, so I know people who have post-production houses, you know, where they do ADR and they make sound booths. So I, I tracked down a couple of sound engineers who are fascinating people, and they're all members of the, you know, the sounds, the societies, the trade bodies. And I got into it. I said, look, you know, I'd like some data. And they were like, ah, I'm not really comfortable about that. And I was kind of going, I, I will pay. You know, I know, it's, I know this is, a, I'm happy to, no, it's not that, it's not that. I said, what is it? He said, there's no um, ISO, there's no international standard to measure a sound recording booth in, against. You know, it's not been done. There's ISOs that cover, you know, density of, you know, for instance, this PET PAT felt has an ISO, again, you know, number that you can judge it against, but but a box doesn't. So he said, we can't, we can't say this, you know, against this ISO, it's this. So I'm really reluctant to do it. I said, okay, um, but other people have data and they said to me and you know, we were on share screen and we go to the screen and they go uh, on almost all of them went you know like a big intake of breath and like I, they were all going i don't know what that means i don't know what that means that that number means nothing what's it against what's what's it being measured against? so eventually two of them said well i will measure it for you in a warehouse you know i'll do a test cost you two and a half grand but you can't you can't mention my name mm. <laughs> yeah exactly and i kind of went so, so both of them came up separately with the same solution they said look it's a domestic call so do do a domestic experiment so you can see on my website it's a bit heath robinson but basically in my workshop which is pretty bright there's no curtains and there's, you know, there's no very little furniture so it's quite echoey i set up a a my mobile phone and a beatbox to generate off youtube very loud white noise you know it's like kind of hiss uh 90 decibels and i measured outside the box and inside the box and the drop is about six decibels which if you know about sound and i didn't until recently is a significant reduction 
in in noise. If you know, again, I'm not claiming it's a studio, but it's 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 a decent and useful reduction in noise. So that's that's how I you know that's how I got to it. Brilliant. So you've also had a few high profile individuals involved. I've seen names like Dawn French and Charlie Condu. How does that feel? It feels absolutely lovely. I do. I, hands on heart. I know Charlie from a long time ago. He was in a film I made, which you probably would like to forget. Um, and, you know, and my wife's an actor and so she knows him as well. So that bless him for doing that. It was very nice of him. And I think you know, he doesn't do anything he doesn't believe in, which is which is lovely. Dawn French was kind of out of left field. My wife and I do, but my wife and her do follow each other, but they're not, you know, we, we, I think I met her 40 years ago. You know, that's, that's how well I know her. So that was absolutely thrilling. And another friend, you know, uh, uh, an actor friend yesterday, um, Andy Nyman, who, if you know Andy, you know Andy, he endorsed it as well. That is really lovely because, you know, I'm not going to deny it, it's helpful, but it's also when it's, it's like when someone buys off Kickstarter that I, I've never heard of. Don't, I don't know them. They don't know me. They're buying it because they like it. That kind of endorsement is really thrilling. So speaking of thrilling endorsements and famous people, we're going to move on to the section called What Are You Like? Which, as I said, I'm supposed to say in a Cockney accent, but I haven't got around to that jingle yet. Um, and we then discuss your favourite books, films, records, and the reasons why they're important to you and why maybe some of our listeners, um, the cash flow crew should go out and make purchases and, and get involved in listening to them and reading them and watching them at their convenience. So we're going to start off with your favorite book and you've chosen money by Martin Amis. What's your reason for that one? Yes. Lots of reasons. So when I went to university, my sister had been to the same university sort of five years before me. And she said, my advice to you is don't go to the freshers' ball and don't be, be polite, say hello and goodbye, but don't speak to anyone for a week. Because after, after a week, everyone on your corridor will be bored of each other and you can come out and start, start afresh. And it's a bit weird advice, but I took it, by the way, it's genius advice I discovered. But she said, you're going to need a couple of books. So I took, I think, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, some French bloke. And I took um, the Rachel Papers by Martin Amis. And I have never laughed so hard in my life. I was just in tears. So I locked into my room, self-imposed exile, was actually joyful. And I read that book a number of times. And I thought about, you know, when I got into filmmaking, I thought about trying to make it. Someone else did make it and didn't do a great job, but it's a, a film with Dexter Fletcher. But anyway, I became, a, I became a number one fan of Martin Amis. Then I got into the film business, and then he wrote this book, which many would regard as but yeah, his his best book, but a pretty seminal novel for the sort of 80s, 90s vibe of, you know, end of Thatcherism, beginning of Blair, and that sort of, you know, go-getting thing. And it was about the film business. And it's about the sort of the, the confidence and, frankly, sometimes the duplicity of the film business. And again, so funny, just the funniest book I read. So I love that book. And then I actually, I did make a film off a Martin Amos novel, which I won't mention because it's not very good. <laughs> um, but I got to meet the man. So that's my third connection. He came out to set. He had a reputation of being really fierce. You know, if you read the, all the interviews that he did with journalists, you kind of get to the end of it going, oh, God, I don't think I, I don't think I'd want to be in the room with him. He was the nicest. He was so thrilled that we were making his, his book into a film. Uh, he was just... So he was just humble and and you know 
full of smiles and you know just it was a really lovely experience and he, he signed my my uh my my paperback copy um so i had those those number of connections but i would say i haven't read it in a while and things do date but when he died a, a couple of weeks ago people were in the in the obituaries were mentioning money it's a what people call a tour de force it's a tour de force of language and pace and plot it's got a lot of plot and characters that you like succession characters you absolutely loathe but you can't tear your eyes off they're just brilliant so that's what i would recommend money by martin amos excellent so now we're going to go into your favorite business book and you've chosen another bounce of the ball by ronald cohen yes i this is this is one of the few business books I own. I should confess that I shouldn't have chosen this book. I'll talk about it for very, very briefly, but I'll tell you why I chose it. I chose it for two reasons. One is very ugly, which is I get an acknowledgement in it, which I've never had before in a book. So my name is in the thanks to, which <laughs> thrilled me. But I did like Ronald Cohen's attitude to um, sort of full disclosure, integrity, but also this thing which I hadn't really come across at that point, but corporate responsibility. It's a really interesting book in talking about sort of giving back, you know, that if you if you make something of yourself, if you do that, you know, you should realize that it's not all about you. You've got to put something back. But the real reason I chose it, it was co-written by my very good friend, Terry Eilert, who did write the best business book in the world for the film business, which is called, fantastically, My Indecision is Final. <laughs> and I'm not sure how old you are, Clayton, but there was this amazing British film company for about four or five years called Gold Crest. And it made things like charity, you know, it was involved in Chariots of Fire and lots of, you know, lots of big movies in the 80s and 90s. And Terry wrote the definitive book about the film business centered around here, which was the collapse of Gold Crest. And it, it's just fantastic. And it's written, it's so cleverly structured and stuff, uh, uh, it, both fascinating, but also um, awful. You know, really compellingly awful as you see this fantastic idea just be torn apart from inside. So um, it's actually My Indecision is Final by Terry Eilert. Right. I need to make a note of that because obviously I need to put that in the show notes. So let everybody right. know that yeah. uh, you will find these titles in the show notes if you sure. choose to to purchase them. So my indecision is final, right? I should put yeah. that on my notes. Right. Yeah. So we're now going to move on to your favorite album or single, and you've chosen The Weight by the band, formerly um, mm -hmm. uh, Bob Dylan's backing band. And um, this is the live version from The Last Waltz, which was a concert film by, is it Scorsese? Yeah. Yeah. Scorsese documentary. Yeah. And I, and, the story behind that is it's it's again it's a film story it's like you know i was a young man thinking what you know what i was going to do and i enjoyed a bit of you know a bit of acting and a bit of you know but i didn't really know what i wanted to do and then do you remember the vhs betamax fight of course when, when, yeah when video recorders came out these two formats were competing and it was a real it was a vicious dogfight and they were basically trying to work out how to get people you know nailed in to their format so in, I don't know if you remember, Peyton, but if you bought a video recorder, they gave you two films. Correct. And we bought a video recorder, and the two films we got was uh, Mash by Oh God, don't hate me. Oh, it's going to come to me in a minute. But it's the, it was the film that, that then inspired the TV series. Um, it's going to come to me in a minute. It, it's a film that does not stand up over time. Actually, interestingly, it's a great bravura piece of filmmaking but it's very dated in terms of some of its uh, content um but the other one was the last waltz by scorsese 
And it was so weird. Before then, if you were a, a film enthusiast, you could see the film in the cinema, and then two or three years later, it would be on TV at Christmas, maybe twice. And that was it. You know, you just, it, they, they just vanished. When video came out, I remember I watched MASH and The Last Waltz 50 times each. I just, it was, I would watch them sometimes three times in a row because I could. You'd get to the end and go, oh, I'll watch that again. It was just fantastic. So I got into The Waltz really you know, a lot. And this track is the one that's been it's backed by the Staple Sisters. So it's the band singing and doing the principal stuff, but the backing is the Staple Sisters. And it's got a moment at the end where um, the, uh, the lead stable sister just just turns to Robbie Robertson and she just goes beautiful and it's such an an emotional moment between them yeah the the band were about to break up uh yeah they were yeah, two two of the guys committed suicide i mean they were really in trouble in that in that in that unit but it's a fantastic piece of, of music weird lyrics you know i've looked at them long and hard and there's biblical references and there's classical references but it's this weird narrative again what i always liked about things it does have a you know a guy turns up in in town and stuff starts happening to him but you only get little tiny fragments of it it's a really compelling sing song and it's the only song i've ever sung in karaoke <laughs> <laughs> well you you mentioned obviously uh, a couple of things there is it robert altman the word the person's yes, name that you, you were robert looking altman, for who's a great filmmaker you know yeah. he's a wonderful filmmaker that, and that was a, you know, that was a, a seminal film of the 70s, you know, about about conflict and about social status and all that stuff. It just doesn't have, you know, I watched it again 20 years later and I was a bit like, oh, God. It's a bit cringeworthy. <laughs> it's a bit cringeworthy. But then again, you also mentioned Mavis Staples and yes. of the Staples singers. Yeah. And you, but one of the reasons I think that performance may have inspired Aretha Franklin, who did her own version of yeah. The Weight. So um, uh, I think that's where uh, that will come full circle for those people who are musicologists out there. And you've yeah. got two films. You've got The yeah. Producers, which is the uh, Mel Brooks. And I don't know what the other one, the other version is. Uh, um, uh, they're, both, they're both Mel Brooks. Okay. So, so, so the, the Producers Mel Brooks, which is Zero Mostel, and it's the kind of, it's the, it's the black and white one. And, it, you know, again, as a, as a, it's about theatre producers, but as a producer, it is both appalling, but also incredibly funny because of what they they will do. Um, do, you, do you know the the, the yes the, the, basis the, of the it? plot? Yeah. Yeah. You raise you raise too much money to make it. It's awful. Everyone kind of goes, oh, I lost all my money, but actually you've only spent you know a tenth of the money on making it. So it's a great premise. And Zero Mostel is a genius. And everyone kind of thought you cannot do that again. You know, you can't top it. But <laughs> Mel Brooks did. You know, he redid his own thing and he wrote a lot of the music and the lyrics. And I think the Nathan Lane version, Matthew Broderick version, is is completely you know, different. Obviously, it's the same basic plot, completely different, but just as good. And my wife watches it every birthday, her birthday, and every Mother's Day with a bottle of wine or maybe two, and you know, with the whole family gathers round. And it, the, the the musical version never fails to make us howl. Yeah, excellent. So you've got. On a classic TV note, we have The Sopranos. Yeah, The Sopranos, again, going back to lockdown, you know, one of those things where you're thinking, I could just completely lose myself here by watching reality TV. And, you know, I did watch quite a bit. But we thought, come on, let's let's watch something. I had watched a lot of The Sopranos before, but again, my wife and I sat down and we did The Sopranos, you know, 
two or three episodes a day. So we really kept to the narrative. And I think that as a sort of, what I like is something which has got a big, um, a big concept behind it, a big organization behind it, and then some consistency and focus and drive and sort of kept to its, you know, kept to its knitting. And it, it absolutely delivered. And that last moment, which I won't, there's a last moment with family. And it was just so appropriate, you know, to, to kind of go, that's it. We've done whatever it was, 62 episodes or whatever. And to end it there was so classy, I thought. You know, so we, you know, again, we laughed and we were appalled and we found some of the characters completely revolting, but utterly compelling. I think it's just a great piece of, of storytelling. So you've been kind enough to share the development of the Vox Box and your work previously in films as a producer. And now obviously you've shared also your favorite book, film and uh, record. So we're going to move on now to the future. So as far as we're concerned, obviously we, there's this fantastic product Vox Box that we all want you to go out and buy and at least take an interest in. But what are your plans for the future of Voxbox after the Kickstarter campaign? Okay, I'm very clear about that. At the moment, it's a it's a business to customer proposition. You know, I'm trying to find individuals who will um, see the, the the utility of it and the value and buy it, and we will get there. But it's not a business. You know, selling 200 Voxboxes is not a business. So there's two things I have to do. One is to get into business to business sales by which i mean i think that what the the most the other most exciting thing at the podcast show was the sound the head of audio at cnn came up and, and he also went oh my god my boss is in new york at the moment making this out of foam hexagons and it doesn't work because we send we're wanting to do kind of you know, extended interviews with people we send them a microphone and then we're just saying oh sorry could you move into that room could you go into that cupboard could you you know could you cover yourself in a duvet he said this is exactly what we need so i think the business to customer um business is, is what i'm in now business to business i'm looking at education you know uh, people doing media courses they have a studio inside the department that they're constantly sending kids home with microphones and having to redo the sound because it's not consistent so it's education I think it's work from home. There are 30 million workers in the UK, currently still 10 million are working from home, either full-time or part-time. So it's the work from home market that's doing um, uh, uh, you know, online presentations. It's um, doctors giving uh, online consultations. It's teachers teaching uh, online. It is um, you know, that those people are gonna have to find my product through a distributor, through a, through a retail outlet. So I need to find Corporations like the BBC, ITV, Global Radio, CNN, and then I need to find a distributor to take it on so that when you go and think about your microphone or think about your, you know, your how to do a presentation, my my product is front and center. So that's a I think that's at least a year two's journey. I've had it I've had interest from retail and from distributor, but I need to kind of, you know, I need to solidify those. As a first-time product designer and entrepreneur, what advice would you give to aspiring individuals who want to bring their innovative ideas to life and launch their own invention? Mentors. I would say it's absolutely about mentors. And you know, people think of a mentoring relationship as being, you know, very much 
sort of father, son, mother, daughter in age. And my mentors are either my age or a couple of them a bit older um, or, or younger than me, rather. So I had four mentors on this. I've had my friend Nick Crike, who I've described already, who introduced me to the material and the people who designed and cut the prototype and was my sort of sounding board there. Absolutely vital. My mentor at the prototype company, which is not a prototype company, it's a design company that, that, that deals with PET felt a lot and understands how it works and what it's capable of. And he's a guy called Arthur Dixon Bell. And he was the one who just said, no, we can do this. We can't do that. We can, I'm, I'm speaking, speaking to him actually at about uh, noon today about another issue that I'd like to, to tackle on Voxbox. My key mentor in terms of getting it to market was a guy called Patrick Patham, who does a thing called Pleco Bags hugely recommend Plico bags, an amazing suit carrier, um, P-L-I-Q-O. And he was the one who said, okay, you've now got a product. How are you going to make it and get it to market? And then he introduced me to my last mentor, so I call Russ Cohen, who's based in Hong Kong. He's a manufacturing services agent. And he's the one who said, okay, this is how you get things made and, and shipped. And he was so clear about what was needed and about pricing, like, you know, if, if you do this, it'll cost too much and you won't be able to sell it properly. So he, he's been, there's those four key people. So it's mentors are everything. You've really shown that what people need is that this isn't a, a one man show. This is yes. an area where people need to be in a position to collaborate with other people and take advice. Yes. With all that in mind, and we've had obviously a very extensive conversation about Voxbox, where can people find you on the internet in relation to Voxbox itself and also in relation to the Kickstarter campaign? If you go into Kickstarter and type Voxbox, it'll come up. But our social media handles are all at Voxbox Portable. Voxbox Portable. And that will lead you to two things. One is my site, which also has the Kickstarter link in it, obviously, but all the other information you might need about the product and how we got there and a bit about me and my 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 crew, my team that's been behind me. If you type in Voxbox into the internet, especially voxbox.studio, it tends to bring you to everything you need. But Voxbox Portable is the key handle. Richard Holmes, inventor and founder of Voxbox. Thank you for joining us on the Cashflow Show. Thank you very much for having me. It's been absolutely lovely. You're most welcome, sir. We've come to the end of the Cashflow Show for today, but I would like to say thank you to our guests for taking the time to share their knowledge, wisdom, and insight. If you loved what you've heard on this week's episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts and leave a five-star review and feedback as it really does help. Whilst you're there, listen to some of our other episodes, which you are bound to enjoy. We want to make this the go-to podcast for entrepreneurs wherever they are in the world and spreading the word really is the best way to grow our show and our community to achieve greater things. Be sure to join us next time for Real People, Real Business, Real Talk.